the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we are very lucky to have Stephen Hale back and we will be talking about Jason Hickel's book, Less Is More, but something about that name I don't think quite gets it right. I actually think we live in a world at the moment where we're so fixated with more, but more is actually less. So you need to listen to find out why less is more and more is less, today on Blind Insights. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. Sitting here with my big pink coffee, still at least half full. A glass half full kind of person today, I think. Uh, (laughs) Well, the world's half empty, or at least two thirds (laughs) empty, but my coffee cup is at least half full. That's good. We're also joined with uh, economics extraordinaire, um, our international economics man of mystery. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Stephen Howe. Thanks very much, Tim. You've gone a little bit over the top. Thank you very much. And thanks, thanks, David, as well. A bit like when I went over the top with Stephanie when I introduced her. More or less awarded her the Nobel Prize. There's nothing (laughs) wrong with being over the top. It's far better than being under it. (laughs) Well, uh, gentlemen, I'm super excited to talk about this book. I found myself changed my worldview. I'm way, like, it's a weird thing to say, right? But I'm a lot more radical after this book, um, which is probably not a good thing to say necessarily. It's an awesome thing. Well, okay, good. Uh, I, I, my problem, my only problem with that is that I feel like it deals with so much of the criticism I couldn't possibly come up with a counter argument. And that seems like a dangerous place to be, but it is an amazing book. (laughs) Even if we argue that it is as a single book, the counter argument to a hundred books on why the world we have is mm. just fine, then it's still a hundred to one, and I got no problem with the one. Yeah, fair, totally true. It's a terrific uh, book, and uh, in a wide variety of areas that I was not very well informed, I now feel better informed uh, and more radical as a result. Mm. Uh, in the one or two areas where I didn't think the book was perfect, I've noticed Jason learning right. over time. Which He's is a wonderful read the thing deficit to know. myth since he wrote. Ah, this is more. that's interesting. I mean, I was initially w- worried about where the book was going to go because, of course, the um kind of uh, extin- extinction porn or wh- whatever you would want to call that, like realism. That's what you well, call absolutely. <laughs> I know, but it's you know, it's a little like you know when um vegans make you watch those horrible films about animals being slaughtered, and it's, it was a little like that. And I was worried. Uh, well, I wasn't worried that that's what the whole book was going to be about, but I wanted more economics. <laughs> you can see that I've taught for too many years because the I think what you're talking about here is the fact that the foreword is written by the two guys from Extinction Rebellion. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, it's very poorly written. Mm. Okay. The number of grammar errors in it poorly chosen words, an odd sentence structure. I'm like, okay, so they couldn't even get in on time so it could be edited. Oh, yeah, okay. So I'm like, well done for aiding your cause here, chaps. Mm, that's upsetting. I didn't put that together. I, I thought there was more, maybe maybe one of the first, maybe some of the first chapters as well were also mostly environmental. Well, and historical. Well, you yeah. have to start from the You have to start somewhere. You really have to start somewhere, and it's not a, blab, not a bad place to start. No. It is our ultimate real constraint absolutely (laughs) yeah so so again like we've done lately with economics books let's contextualize this for the listeners sure so listeners from my perspective when we talked 
to Stephen last time about the mission economy. We made the point that you have the books you need to work out what's going on now, what can be done now, and how to get on with doing something right mm. now. If we look that if we added Zach Carter's book, The Price of Peace, we can go back and we can see the rise of Keynes, and then we can see neoliberalism's deliberate destruction of Keynesianism, so that now we use it as reactionary Keynesianism. But other than that, the West has drunk the Kool-Aid and believes that somehow Keynes, you know, Keynesianism can't work. <laughs> Here we're diving back far earlier in that what Jason is giving us is one way to understand how we ended up with the capitalist world that Keynes grew up in and turned into the neoliberal world that we're surviving at present. And you know, I described the book to Stephen and Tim a minute ago before mm -hmm. we turned the microphones on as the other books will help you work out what you need to do and how to understand the economic world. This is the book you need to read so that you can't sleep. Yeah. And you decide that actually there's no more putting shit off and waiting for other people to do stuff. Yep. Wake up, get organized, and get engaged because Jason is essentially laying out more than a 500-year path of how step by step we've managed to undo our planet, mm -hmm. totally change what we believe as a species, and as a consequence put everything on the line. And his answer may not be perfect, but it rolls forward constantly with a positive tension of this is how we got here and this is what we can do about it. And it forces you to want to move forward and change it rather than just curl up you know, in a ball under the table and give up, mm. which makes it an incredibly important book because so many books that point out the terrible state that we've put the world in, by the end of them you just want to curl up in a ball. Yeah. Mm. It was a great thing with this one. The few people I know have read it already have all said, no, I can't curl up in a ball after this. I actually have to do something. This is the book that if you want to buy someone a book to get them up and motivated about our need to transform the world and undo the damage, you know, less is more is the place to start. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's a very, very powerful book indeed. And it gave me a completely different perspective on the history of capitalism and how we got where we are now and uh, what the possibilities are um, going into the into the future. It's obviously it's coming from a different perspective because Kate, Kate Roweth is an economist, but I, it's almost a little bit more radical than that book. If if I was to li line up the, the four books... Yeah, it is the <laughs> most radical. This is yes. the most radical. Then comes Kate Roweth. Yeah. Then comes Stephanie. And actually, if you want the most conservative of them, really, Mariana Mazzucato's book. Yeah, out of necessity of yeah. being so close to power. That's right. She's still the one that is smoothing down the edges beautifully. Mm. Whereas Jason, being an anthropologist... He's like, well, there are no smooth edges. So mm. why would I pretend they are? Why would I write about them? Mm. Okay, Stephen, should we start at the absolute beginning? And that is that Jason has quite a unique definition of capitalism that goes back a lot further than normal. And that this means that experts who've been trained in a view of what capitalism is could spend more time arguing about why it doesn't agree with theirs than actually probably understanding is a process or appreciating why he wrote it that way. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I like to start a lot of uh, arguments with Hyman Minsky. So let's start with yeah, Hyman Minsky. Yeah, Minsky is our, he's the other international man of mystery. He's yeah. our dead man of international <laughs> mystery. Well, Minsky once said there uh, are more versions of capitalism than 
Heinz has ver- has a variety of pickles. That's, <laughs> that's when there were 57 varieties. Yeah, I think we're probably now down to three. <laughs> he, he also said that all forms of capitalism are flawed. It's just more, some forms are more flawed, flawed than, than others. Than others. <laughs> uh, we were having, lots of us, a, 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 a Twitter chat in early January in response to Kate Raworth saying that she thought terms like capitalism and socialism were terms from the 19th century that we should just stop using now and that are not particularly useful. And as part of that, she said that if she spoke to 10 people about capitalism, she'd have 11 definitions yeah. coming about it. She didn't really know what capitalism was. And that's, that's where I chipped in with a bit of Minsky. Jason Hickel wrote underneath, and this was about two weeks after I'd read his book, actually, um, that no, he, he, he believed it was appropriate to have a, uh, a fairly specific, if not definition of, of capitalism, a history of mm. capitalism. And he has a, a, a date that he would start capitalism from, whereas other people might say capitalism is as old as markets and David Graeber's book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, will say, well, that means it's more than 5,000 years old. Um, or uh, capitalism is to do with uh, more uh, te- technological changes which... Uh, um, uh, made it um, more efficient to uh, manufacture iron or cotton mm. uh, or st- use steam power, dating from about 1750. And people often date capitalism from there because 1776, of course, was the birth of the US and also, to, to an economist, more importantly, was uh, the year that Adam Smith's The Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations was published, which was commenting on what was going on at the time. Yanis Varoufakis will say, no, 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 Adam Smith was writing about uh, butchers and bakers and brewers pursuing their own interests, but by doing so in competitive markets without meaning to pursue pursuing the general public interest, that's not capitalism. Mm. Capitalism got going, if you're Yanis Varoufakis, in about 1870, when there were another series of uh, technological changes and mass production, large industrial organizations, the beginnings of a form of globalization, uh, stock markets, Mm. um, big banks, and what Minsky would have called finance capitalism got going. And so there are all these different ways of dating the beginnings of capitalism, depending on how you define capitalism. But Jason dates it to about 1500, because 1500 is where he dates the beginning of the enclosure movement in Britain and across uh, Western Europe to where uh, people were denied access to land and turned into landless labourers, in many cases having to move towards towns to look for paid work, creating a form of artificial scarcity so that now if you couldn't find paid work, if you couldn't generate an income, you'd starve. And that, as we know, is a, is, is the date when... Uh, modern colonialism um, got going um, when uh, uh, Europe rediscovered, as far as it was concerned, North America. Mm. And from then on, capitalism was about exploiting uh, one form of frontier or another, if you're Jason Hickel, geographical frontiers, but technological frontiers too, just to incorporate what uh, the 1750s and the 1870s uh, and, and all that. And he also, and this was interesting, this is something I'd not thought about before. He talks in Less is More, doesn't he, about the ultimate triumph of dualism. 
Yes. As a philosophy. Yeah. Which, and of I, course, has always been in Western yeah. religions. It's in mm. the book of Genesis. Yeah. But, but, but it made it into philosophy, and there was this desperate hope, I imagine, that as we move towards reason, that maybe you know, the Enlightenment wouldn't take dualism on board. Mm-hmm. So you know, I remember studying Descartes in History of Political Thought and hating it from the first moment, mm. <laughs> going you know, from an existential perspective, Descartes's a moron. Mm. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I am, and I'm bloody lucky, I think, <laughs> that you're physical first. Mm. So, you know, to have the two things pop up in the same couple of chapters. So, for me, you know, the enclosure movement, you know, no, it happened, but didn't really understand it. All I've ever read about it is Jean Jacques Rousseau's Discourse on the Origins of Inequality, mm. where he describes the transition from living in the beautiful big forest, and we all have relative time and freedom, and then someone you know digs a hole and puts an offense post and says everything on this side of the post is mine mm-hmm. and it's the critical point in the book where what Rousseau's changing is a change in how people understand the world and what idea they're going to pitch at other people and that they do it with such a sense of certainty and aggression mm-hmm. and dualism is much the same the way Jason describes Descartes and I was stopped Dead as an undergrad by those two bits of books more than anything else in my entire undergrad education. That this idea of this fence post was a holy shit moment of human history. Mm. Mm. And Descartes going, oh no, I think therefore I am. Humans are above everything. Mm. Everything else is mechanistic was my other holy shit moment of realising there's a reason we've ended up evil and stupid. Because mm. you put these two things together and I never would have gone down the anthropological path Jason has gone down to put the pieces together. Mm. But it made immediate sense to me why an anthropologist would do it. And I find it a more convincing answer of how we got where we got. Because what he's doing, instead of saying, how would any individual discipline do it? Mm. He's tracking the history of culturally Mm. when the use of ideas and language to control other people became normalized. Mm. So the enclosure movement is the beginning of a process of normalization the beginning of cultural hegemony mm. that rather than just affecting a single society or a single culture ends up crushing the world. Mm. And when you add Descartes into that mix, you get a quote unquote enlightenment underpinning for your 150, 180 year old physical brutality of enclosure and then colonization. Is a case of that being a period in time when, that thought could be written down because as far as I'm concerned, that is also a part of the tension between Confucianism and Taoism, right? Where that got crushed. I feel like that embodied embedded mind. I know this is slightly off track. but No, it's not, man, because different cultures went through this at different times. That's right. So, okay, guys, we're going off track. Sorry, <laughs> but it's worth doing. And we can do this because I've read enough Edward Slingerland to actually be really interested in this. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Slingerland, you know, writes all about Taoism and the idea of Wu Wei, effortless action. And he has a history chapter at the beginning of his book on Wu Wei that once again gives us a context that most philosophers won't give us. Mm. And that is that really the Warring States period in China was more devastating to China in that period than World War I and II were to Europe mm-hmm. in the 20th century. It was crushing. And as a consequence, as China came out of it, the only 
thought processes, the only philosophies, the only governance systems that would be entertained were those that contained people mm. and limited their options and kept them in a subservient role. So what we really see is different cultures have got to this point of manufacturing subservience, manufacturing control uh, at different times and in different ways. You know, Japan definitely did it under the shogunate mm. once it was isolated. Mm. But what really changes when we get to the enclosure movement in Europe is it's the first time we are aware of where a single set of ideas in one bit of the world come together so perfectly that they become hegemonically normal mm. across the entire globe yeah. for centuries and don't ever really get broken. They get modified, but they don't really ever get broken. You know, the fact that we're still having the mind or brain argument in 2021, the fact that you know Colin McGinn and Mark Rowlands are both still having to go to conferences and defend the idea that you know, the mind is in the brain and the brain is embodied and the body is embedded in the world. Like, but it, that is, but for the, exactly this reason in Jason Hickel's book, that is such a crushing idea because all of a sudden, all these other assumptions and follow on thoughts that come from that realization, you start to put our entire economic system into question because it is based on this. The narrative, our entire narrative yeah, is really. bullshit. To pull it, to to, to pull it towards modern day and and, and uh, economics uh, a little bit. Uh, the narrative is when we think about um, when we think about addressing ecological issues. It's always about the cost in terms of GDP no. and whether it will hurt the economy. And when people talk about, oh my God, the economy won't grow because we're not having the net immigration mm. we're normally used to. That is the mindset where. Actually, the um, the people are here, and the planet is here in order to serve the economy, and the economy is here basically to serve the interests of a of an elite within it. So, uh, I, I I think that the what I never thought through before, because I'm not particularly uh, <laughs> well read or or an intellectual, is that, oh, that's uh, wrong. that dualism. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can be an economist, but um, in fact, that is a problem with the training of economists. It's a problem with the training they, they of all are, professions. They're very well technically trained, but they're not very well educated. Yeah, like let's have another year at uni for every profession called you're going to be a rounded human first. Yeah, but so, yeah. so what I'd not thought about before was that that dualism is not just about placing man above nature. Mm. It's then about classifying. First Nations people in North America or mm. Africans no, you can as divide. part of nature. You can just yeah. keep dividing anything that, you want to divide. And then the working class yes. yeah. in you can just England keep dividing. are part of yeah. nature. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> you keep dividing. You're it's quite right. for breaking people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weaponised solipsism yeah. almost, yeah. right? Mm. <laughs> like <And> as a <laughs> See, this is, again, as we're talking about this, it was so strange to read a book that reminded me of the two most poignant bits of being an undergrad. And realising mm. that when I realised the thing about J.J. Russo and went to a shoot and wanted to talk about it, even the lecturer of the subject really didn't grasp why I was excited. Mm. Mm. D didn't get, why does this bother you? And when I went into my history of political thought, you know, shoot with Paul Corcoran the week after reading Descartes and thinking Descartes was an idiot, I thought Paul was going to explode at me. I'd just taken out one of the heroes of his worldview. <laughs> and I'm like, how the heck... Did I manage to not be conditioned, you know, into taking Descartes seriously? 
Mm. And how is it that you know one page of Rousseau is more important to me than all the rest? Mm. The rest is interesting. But for a guy that was being funded, I think from memory by a Swiss, you know, rich person and had to write basically in code, he was saying that everything about the elite in Europe, even in the time he was writing, the seventeen eighties, is already corrupt mm. beyond description. Mm. These days, the only person I can imagine being able to start from a clean sheet and find this stuff is an anthropologist. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, David Graeber's like, debt pairs really well with this book Precisely. because when we were talking about warring states before, how much of that narrative is tied to the idea of debt and money? Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's the, the thing I love about how Jason Hickel has framed this is, is all of a sudden it has not become a political issue. It has become an entirely moral issue. It, everything about this has a moral basis and it really is just And about, physical. Yeah, it's mm. physical. It's all physical and it's all moral. And you should be morally affected by what happens to the physical. That's right. You know, when he talks about nature in this book and the number of indigenous cultures who don't have any distinction between people and any other living thing, we're just all living things. Mm. with different forms of subjective awareness. Mm. We all act in the world the best we can with what we've got. We all shape the world a little bit. We're all shaped by the world a little bit. There's not really any essential difference. Mm. And I was trying to think, okay, what was my experience in my life that with the physical was the equivalent of that page in Rousseau and thinking that Descartes an idiot. And it dawned on me that it would have been at about 19 or 20, one of our mares on the farm was about to have a foal and was having trouble and I ended up sitting in the sawdust with her at two in the morning with a foot braced on each of her hips, hanging on to the foal's you know, hooves, pulling a foal out. Well, And foal lands in Dave's lap. Mm. Now, foal survive within a few hours. Foal's up and engaging in the world and walking around and already moving and wobbly but going. And one of the first things I remember the next morning, after, okay, the foal's okay, go inside, get some sleep. Come out in the morning stiff and sore from sitting on the ground for hours in the cold until we got the foal out. And mum horse, you know, nudges the foal over like, you know, David, come meet where you'd help deliver. In its own little conscious way, the horse was saying, well, you know, meet what you helped with. Well, that's, It was that... the most direct form of going that awareness, consciousness, all these things are different. But you're in a world where we share more than separates us. It's holism as opposed yes. to dualism, mm. except yeah. not holism beginning with an H, but beginning with a W. W, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah we're not yeah. going the donut here. <laughs> yeah. there, there is no hole in the middle. It's the whole of everything. There are some people, including my friend Phil, who sort of naturally think that way mm. right from the beginning and are essentially unaffected by the environment. I mean, they, they don't come at the world from a from a dualistic perspective but almost everybody does these days yeah. in countries like australia because um we've spent our whole lives indoor and air conditioned <laughs> yeah absolutely i don't know what it is about phil but phil has always been talking about degrowth before it was um, a thing a thing yeah and uh i just think he has always seen the world yeah that I... way. and there are some people that do we're going to need to genetically test him so that we can work out what it is that... <laughs> yeah, but uh, again, I, I'm sort of picking out my point where I really became aware mm. of being what I am. Right. doesn't mean I wasn't that before the day delivering the foal. Mm. So I wonder if Phil, like me, spent a lot of time on a farm as a kid or was something that just he was given enough time to connect in the way he wanted to he, the world. He's a city boy. I don't... Uh, okay, and don't he's know not, he wouldn't have your reading 
I mean, you wouldn't have that wouldn't have been. <laughs> so yeah. it's not coming from there either. Okay, it's wow. coming from it's coming from somewhere. Somewhere and in actually, Phil. This is, of course, how the great majority of people of our species have seen the world since we got going. However many tens of thousands of years yeah. ago, people anatomically identical to us have been on the planet. Dualism is a a, a a small minority of all the people that have ever lived. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. You know, if we look at the point where agriculture takes over, and initially most humans are not persuaded by agriculture, we have more and more evidence about the number of people who went, why would I want to break my back and eat crappy seeds? Mm-hmm. I'd rather hunt four hours a day, collect berries, stash nuts, and have lots of leisure time and hang out with my friends and family. So it actually took a long time to convince a lot of people to be agricultural. And then, again, if we're talking about sort of Jason's idea that how humans see the world and each other change, and that's the critical point. If we were going to go back one step further than enclosure, I would jump back to the point, and I think this is too long a boat, and I wouldn't want to change Jason's definition, but it's just the next step back, I think, is the point at which to stop people walking off the farm and back into the forest you start telling them that the forest is evil and the creatures want to kill them, which every indigenous people on earth knows is garbage. Mm. Yeah, and I, well, that's not quite the same point, but dualism, when you come to think of it, about it, it, it dates from the beginnings of agriculture in the Middle East because that's yeah, where same time Western from. religions come from. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where the book of mm. Genesis or what, what, what there was before the book of Genesis True. basically yeah. dates from a man given... Dominion over nature, well, that, that fits nicely when you're uh, yep. organised agriculture. Yeah, but then there's also interesting choice of words in some ancient religious texts. Mm. Very often the word is stewardship. Mm. Now, stewardship's not dominion in the way we understand it in the modern world. Mm. Stewardship is do the right thing by this world. So there was a period, obviously, where we hadn't doubled down on bad decisions. Mm. We hadn't doubled down on domination. I think the big thing, listeners, again, this is sort of a weird episode that we're not really describing the book. We're describing all the amazing things in the book that you need to understand and read. And in some ways, hopefully, we're giving you more ways into the book and more insights into why it's so important. Mm. Well, we could we could uh, um, get back to the book <laughs> if you want to. I we can do that. That might be that might be a, a useful a useful thing to do. Going back to the 16th century and enclosure and artificial scarcity, that was about, Jason Hickel would, would say, making people desperate, putting people under yeah. pressure, providing a source of cheap labour, which could be an input into into um, uh, the early stages of, of uh, industrial development. Mm. It's like when you first came on and talked to us and said, okay, we're in Africa. You're the Europeans. You want these people to work on your plantation. You go, hi, would you like to come and work on my plantation? And, of course, the local person says, no. Mm. So you go, hmm, hi, I'm going to tax you. Mm. And if you don't pay in the currency of my choice, I'll burn your hut down. So really what we're seeing is something you explained to us the first time you came on that we went, oh, this so helps. Well, now we see that's not the only leg, is no. it? The only the other thing it's, you're doing is I'm going to throw you off the land. Yep. The only way you get food scarcity. is to get money. <laughs> it's all about manufactured <laughs> yeah, scarcity. Right. And we didn't call it manufactured scarcity when we talked about how money is introduced. Mm. But really what we can see is there are other moments of manufactured scarcity used as tools of social control. 
And money does go back 5,000 years, of course. Yeah, of yeah. The, the, and yeah. a this, bunch of currencies aren't even started by the government. They're just appropriated and then used in that yep. tax way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So we get an interesting thing here where you know the, the manufactured scarcity mm. ends up being so important. So this is the really strange thing of our time. We've gone from manufactured scarcity for so much of the last 500 years to now actual scarcity. And I wonder if at some level oh, part of the yeah. reasons why people struggle to genuinely understand real scarcity now is because at some level, if we all look at the system, we all go... There's tons of stuff. I'm just not in a position to have much. Mm. And then that's been such a normal perspective for so long that now we're finally at the point where, no, for the first time ever, there's now actually not tons of stuff. There's more people than stuff. And the people at the top have a lot of stuff, and the rest of us at the moment aren't yet fighting over the remains. Mm. But we get closer every year. Exactly yeah. what they wanted when they did enclosure. Exactly what they wanted when they destroyed, you know, the developing, well, not the developing, the, the pre-colonial you know, world by going in and you know, just smashing stuff. In important senses, we've run out of frontiers. Yes. Mm. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's various measures of this. The Global Footprint Network people, uh, those assistant scientists will tell you that we went beyond one earth in about 1970. Yeah. Uh, and people that talk about carbon dioxide intensity in the atmosphere tell you that 350 parts per million is safe and we went beyond that in 1988. Yeah. Jason talks about to the amount of material we're digging What's out. What's it called, Global Physical Boundaries in his book? Is that right? Uh, that there's multiple of them of different yeah. things. Well, that he picks out, he says in the year 2000, we started basically digging up more stuff. Of yeah. Right. Like we're, we're now over we're, pretty much all the important global physical boundaries. And there's no argument about that. No. And listeners, the really mm. important thing in this book is he's making the point, we need to work out how to live inside the physical boundaries. And what he means by physical boundaries is the system can always provide that amount again. It can recover and provide it again. And where, where there's overlap between this and what we've said before is... Uh, he doesn't say stop measuring. Uh, he, he does explain where gross domestic product accounting comes from, measuring the size yep. of the economy in the 1930s. And the, the it was Simon for a very Kuznets. specific reason and yeah. wasn't meant to be used everywhere for everything. And, and he's not saying, uh, he's not saying uh, uh, stop measuring GDP. No. He's not even necessarily saying that if GDP grows between now and next year and the year after, that's uh, in itself a problem. He's saying, as we've said before, and as Philip Lorne has said to you, I'm sure that we should be abandoning GDP as an objective, mm. working out what's destructive and scaling and live it down. Live within physical boundaries. Yes, and uh, working out what's important and what we want to grow and that isn't destructive, which yeah. means uh, de decommoditizing. He talks about uh, mm. um, uh, many mm. of our basic needs, so uh, things like water, yeah, or mm. even... Uh, higher level needs like education yeah. Yeah. ought to be freely yeah, available. Absolutely. Again, all these things yeah. go better if you do them as a public thing where you don't need to make profit. Because you take profit out of education, healthcare, then all you have to do is provide it. It becomes the most affordable way. And there are practical suggestions that he makes in the book for um, living within our limits as well, moving towards a, a circular economy, tightening up on standards uh, so that we yeah. get rid of uh, um, 
products that uh, become obsolescent. Almost you get rid of built-in obsolescence so that <laughs> That's right. everything can be rebuilt. Yeah. And again, I remember when a couple of days after Christmas, I went and got my iPhone 12 Pro. I really wanted it because it's got a LiDAR sensor. Mm. And that from a blind perspective is fantastic. I can use it for physically mapping environments where there's a lot of noise and I'm not hearing what's going on around me. Mm. But, you know, I will probably only have this phone three years before the LiDAR sensor is monumentally better. Mm-hmm. And I won't be able to have a <laughs> yeah. modular version clipped in that makes my 12 Pro better. Thanks, Steve Jobs. I'll have to get rid of my 12 Pro. Mm. And, and there is a there is a smartphone in Europe that you can't buy here called a Fairphone. Yeah, the phone. Fairphone. You, you, you yeah. can't. So there's no yeah. reason why. No, yeah. it could all be done, to, but yeah. it needs to be met. And like mm. fridges, they on average now last seven years because components can't easily be replaced. Whereas if you just mandated... Everything has to have spare parts and everything has to have at least a minimum life of 15 years mm-hmm. or you have to buy it back from the consumer if it dies before that point. Yep. So uh, right, right to repair. That's yeah, what, yeah, yeah, right to whole, repair, yeah. which and is it, a fantastic idea. In a variety of ways, Jason is explaining in the book that people could have a better quality of life, most people. Well, that's the big thing yeah. here is <laughs> all of this is about saying we need to use less resources and focus on quality of life rather than quantity of stuff that gets made. Mm. Quantity of stuff that gets made is a terrible judge of anything. Yeah. Yep. What struck me about the book was right at the beginning, actually, because I've had this feeling myself being uh, uh, of a certain age. Jason talks about his childhood in what is what's Eswatini, what used to be called Swasigal. Yeah, I struggle to say the new name. Yeah. When uh, they'd gone a, a, a... a long drive mm. in the car and they'd come back and he'd have to pick all the insects of the car and how many mm. insects and moths and butterflies there were mm. and going back and visiting recently he had to drive somewhere and it just seemed completely different that fits my own experience yeah there are fewer it's not just scientific no, reports I was talking to my yeah. I was talking to my dad about this going hey dad think about your own lifespan when you get home from a big trip how much less time does it now take to clean the front of the car from bugs mm-hmm. and my dad actually stopped dead on the phone he went hang on you're right i hadn't put it together cuz no one did ask me the question so you know in that chapter he makes the point in a lot of places in the world where the surveys have been done biomass of insects is down 80% whoa this is terrifying stuff. Well, it it is, yeah. I mean that it it's uh, it's it's important to that listeners are aware that when you read this book, um, as David was saying and Tim was saying at the beginning, it will be a call to action. It won't be something which makes you think, "Oh, we're stuffed." And there's no, nothing we can do about no, it. To get that's, on with it now yeah, because yeah, there's so much we can so do. That's what's so beautiful about it. Like yeah. I, I wasn't sure it was going to get there, you know, yeah. just but it was. The whole book was about it. Yeah. But there is plen- there's plenty of there, there's plenty of things which if uh, if we were just to pick them out of the book would uh, would be depressing. There's the information mm. about insect populations, yeah. about fish stocks being wiped out in some parts of the world, which uh, yeah, well, that wonderful documentary that's on at the moment, Seaspiracy. Just makes you really sad because there's there's no way out of seaspiracy at the end of the documentary. Mm. Deforestation, uh, extinctions being at a thousand times the mm. background yeah. level. Fifteen percent, I think, of all uh, uh, all species mm. have gone extinct in the last fifty years. Mm. Um, he talks about soil depletion and yep, scientists- what modern farming has done since World War Two. But yeah. then he counterbalances this with some wonderful examples mm. of how fast biological 
systems can bounce back. Mm. And he gives a wonderful example of a, a chunk of Brazil that had been rainforest, mm. had been turned into farmland, mm. had basically died and become desert. 21 or 22 years and the rainforest is back. And he makes a critical point here, and it's a point we've made in other episodes and with other guests. We have a few more years where if we get busy, we can save most of what's left and recover quite quickly because the system still has plenty of potential for rebound in it. Things are bad, but the potential for rebound is still like reasonably elasticity high. Elasticity even. Yeah. yeah. But the more time we waste, the less chance there is of rebound. And this is a point that Jason constructs so carefully in multiple parts of the book. If we take action soon, i.e. this year, next year, the year after, most of these systems will bounce back relatively quickly and you know we can watch the world get healthier in front of our eyes. Mm. What, he, what he does, uh, I think, get over quite effectively, though, is that um, technology isn't going to save us, or at least not on its own. Yeah. No, like, Make again, the, the delusional <laughs> things of, hey, let's go to Mars. Well, yeah. dum-dum. What, on your own or with five peeps? That was funny. Live in a bubble? You were saying, you know, how there's no new frontiers, and it's like, well, if, if, that, if you were to say that Mars was one, it, that fundamentally doesn't address the problem that, no. It will just ruin Mars as well, you know? Yeah, because we're taking the same mindset with yeah. us. Green hydrogen could be a new frontier. But yeah. what Jason would say is, well, you know, we're still all these other things. We're still doing all these. I'm going to vote for green hydrogen because we had Derek on. Well, I'm in favour of green. Yeah. I, and I don't think, I think Jason Hickel yeah. would be in favour of green hydrogen. Yeah, but the great well. thing from having an engineer on, <laughs> from reading Derek's paper 10 years ago, was going from 10 years ago to now, mm. the fact that the big mining companies are going to change their whole fleets. Mm. to hydrogen mm. and even they're willing to admit they probably want to produce it via green methods because it will make it cheaper and more reliable mm. but, so, but then of course we have to deal with the fact that in order to generate that green energy we need to dig up a lot of stuff yeah there's going to be a terrible the, period mm. in transition yeah. of transitioning and you know a funny thing reading this book and sort of reflecting on the jj Rousseau chunk and descartes and you know having a foal land in my lap which is a truly amazing experience was actually realizing, okay, I'm totally and utterly sick of teaching politics at university, um, which is you know, good being a student again because that way at least I'm not getting sick of teaching. But the idea of trying to come up with a course to help people undo <laughs> their dualism, <laughs> that would be fascinating. Absolutely. Monumental. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I much, not on the same level, but I, I much more enjoy teaching rethinking capitalism. Yeah, at uh, at uni than I do teaching people how the system works. banking <laughs> yeah. works. Uh, although that's that's important as well. Another positive from the book, which um, ties in with a, another really good book from about ten years ago by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett called The Spirit Level, was where Jason makes the point that when you look at any metric you like of the quality of life in different countries internationally. Um, for low-income countries, GDP growth helps. But once you get past about Spain or Korea, yeah, it doesn't, help it doesn't make any difference at all. Oh. So there are many uh, economies, including our own and uh, uh, the, the US economy, not that we're necessarily advocating for this, but in principle we could, we could scale back. Yeah, and this is the wonderful activity. point with his argument saying, look, a lot of developed countries use way too much energy, resources, everything. A lot of countries don't have access to enough to have their people, you know, happy and comfortable. So it's, a lot of people need to use more. That that was the Wilkinson yeah. point, of course. Inequality matters in high-income countries. Yep. The size of the economy, 
Well, not really. I mean, the, the only <laughs> Jason says GDP is a measure of uh, the the well being of capitalism, yeah, not a well being of people <laughs> or the right. environment. Mm. Yeah, and it's a great way to put it, and mm. it just fits in so well with so much of what we've read. But yeah, mm. you know, listeners, you'll hear from the fact that we keep we keep disappearing off into the big ideas mm. because this book has just got so many big ideas. And yeah. when those big ideas start to resonate you, that's the power of this book is that once these big ideas resonate, you need to learn more. So listeners, this enclosure movement in Europe, if any of you are a historian who knows about this area or have been taught by a historian who taught you about this area, let us know. Because this period where everything was enclosed and artificial scarcity was created and people were deliberately crushed by a system that said, we can exploit people more if we take away their access to resources. What interested me, and which I only vaguely knew about before, was the gap between the collapse of feudalism and the enclosure movement. I get the impression that more often than not, from what I remember of studying history, Mm. is the bit in the middle was just a blip. Like mm. it was like, oh, well, we don't have good data in this period. Mm. So feudalism and, oh, and then we went into kind of the, well, it, it automatically gets called the early modern. Mm. And the early modern looked a lot like us. So the idea that there was, so Jason makes the point in the book, there was a period in Europe between the end of feudalism and the enclosure movement where the average calendar in Europe had 90 days off work a year. Mm. And where wages went up for uh, uh, many people by a huge amount. Yep. Rents were low. Yep. It was linked, of course, to uh, God. God help help us from this. But it was linked linked, of course, to uh, the plague. And so we get back to that interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. You reduce population, and skills are worth more, and resources go further. So we get again this question of genuine scarcity or artificial scarcity. Mm. When there were less people, people were more valuable. But when there's less people in the world, there's more stuff to go around. So that made for an interesting balancing point. And the the patterns of social conflict over time, the idea that uh, the enclosure movement was the elite fighting back in a way, because that's in a way that's what we've had since 1980. Yeah, and a very sophisticated elite because it was both the religious elite wanting to dominate and aristocratic political elite want to dominate Mm. and a growing economic class wanting to be protected from those that were being disenfranchised. Mm. So, again, it would be so easy. And listeners, there's no conspiracy theory in this book. Jason is saying this is not how a deep, dark cabal came into being. Mm. This is just a whole series of steps mm. where really ruthless people who absorbed dualism, who absorbed the idea that I am rich and powerful because I am amazing and you are poor because you're stupid. The people with this mindset just kept taking advantages or kept taking advantage of the next situation and these to are not prove evil themselves people. These are people who, from their perspective, this was the right thing to do. Well, it was the right thing yeah. to do for them because yeah. in a world where there was always stuff, why would you slow down? You have to understand the world differently to slow down. The one of the big suggestions that Jason comes up with is colonial reparations. I think that from well, after reading the book, I was mostly convinced that that would be the first step on whatever journey it is that we go on to fix even environmental things. Well, not just colonial, but mm. climate um, yeah. reparations as well. <laughs> like to me, it has mm. to be global. And the reason you help in the developing world is because 
if you give them ways to produce energy cheaply and reliably and without doing damage, mm. then they can do more about telecommunications, improve healthcare, improve education. So, But also it, reduce population because as your quality yeah. of life goes up, you have less children. You see, the terrible thing is that if you start improving the world, what you see is population growth doesn't go down for a while. People have to believe the kids aren't yeah. all going to die. But as so things stand at the moment, first. of course, where in most countries where population is growing, the um, the consumption per capita, it's not actually then that... A, no, 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 no their consumption. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. But it, it's uh, what you don't want is for them to mimic the That's pattern. Right. More peeps and more had. consumption. Yeah, so yeah. you wouldn't yeah. want to do no. colonial reparations and also export Fox News. Um, no. Yeah. So... This is where, again, the idea popped in my head that really educating people to see the world differently. Mm. Whoever becomes the really good educator of that who can make the three or four hour documentary series mm. that just gets stuck in people's heads. So we need... I think I think Fidel should write the book. Fidel. Mm. Uh, Fidel is the busiest person <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, but that would be the book on reparations. I'm talking about the book on changing people's perspective on seeing dualism and seeing separation. Right, right. So yeah. my bad. But yeah, so there's so many things in this book that people can act on. And if everyone acted on a bit that makes sense to them, mm. there's so much potential for action here. And is it about replacing capitalism? You then go back to what you mean by capitalism in the first place because mm. many businesses, even big businesses, don't grow. Mm. And don't need to. Mm. If you can make enough money that your people are all doing okay, and you can put some money aside to develop new products. And you don't need to advertise because the best advert for your product is the fact that the cell phone you make or the fridge you make lasts 25 years mm. and is totally modular. That actually the quality of what you do is the most powerful advertising there can be. What a great idea of a way to be in business. It's at the macro level that there need to be limits. Mm. But in order to support those limits, that's where we need to challenge these ideas of dualism and and even very practical bits of arithmetic, as Jason points out. If uh, if the world economy, the way we've organised it at the moment, has to grow by 3% per year in order to avoid uh, um, an economic um, collapse or, or recession and mass unemployment, as he quite rightly points out, that doubles the size yeah. of the economy in 23 years and in just over 200 years it multiplies it by a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. So permanent growth yeah. is delusional. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like all the books we've read, unemployment potentially ends up being the problem. When we transition, yeah. we need less pointless crap and stuff lasts, so we need a whole different model of employment. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter which way we kind of you know cut the loaf of bread we end up having to revisit either federal job guarantees or universal basic income. Well, I think Jason is probably an, Jason's an advocate of a federal job guarantee yeah. now. Um, uh, uh, but I think I've, I'd be with him on this. Uh, there should be a guaranteed minimum yeah. income. And that sort of is part guarantee. of the way you can start having you know, that global impact of going, there should be a global minimum wage. And we but, should be thinking about not increasing the retirement age, but... Reducing the retirement yeah. age over time is... And, and, and well, taking the 90 days off as well, not yeah. that we have the plague. Well, but. Letting people who want to work work, but go, yes. the normal's going to be a three-day week. 
Yeah, mm. or twenty-hour work week, or and, whatever. And yeah. there, of course, we're bank going back to Keynes. Yeah, and, and he can... makes <laughs> Hickel makes the point about Keynes too. So mm. we always come back to Keynes in his fifteen hours. Mm. Mm. Now, I, you know, if it was a twenty-one, twenty-two hour week, three days of seven to eight hours, which meant everyone could do their three days a week, so we in a sense double the amount of job positions. Mm. But more people are able to fix things. More people, you know. If only Keynes had read Hickel. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. almost as though Keynes didn't understand, and why would he? What was philosophically the growthism yeah. and yeah, we had, you know, how difficult he had it the, would be, the, right. the fascination mm. in where did money come from? Mm. So it was almost like he he was so abstract in so many ways mm. that he could be interested in the ancient abstract. Mm. But again, he was already such a product of dualism and disconnection mm. from nature, mm. yeah, of living in the artifice of modern civilization, disconnected from everything that got ground to dust to make it. I mean, he had the uh, the realization, though, that it's it's primarily a system of thought the first, and then you do the maths. Like yeah. it's it's how uh, it, I think he was what mostly kind of society thinking. Do you want? I think he was mostly yeah. thinking as a genuine progress yep. indicator kind of person. Yep. Well, I yeah. think Keynes is one yeah. of the greatest people ever to live. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's some gaps in what he knew, mm. but golly, the amount he did know and mm. what he did with what he didn't know yeah. is just wow. Mm. But the wonderful thing is we seem to be getting more people at once who are putting really important pictures of how things got the way they did mm. and what we can do about them together in a way that will make it all more consumable and comprehensible for more and more people. And that's really good. It is. And, and uh, I don't know when we reach the tipping point where this becomes a mass, genuine mass movement that can actually lead to changes in government policies. But I, I think it might happen sooner than... Well, it has to be yes. soon. Because if it's not soon, then the, the disaster gets too big. And when the disaster gets too big, what you will have people is just going nuts with rage and frustration mm. rather than with positive action for positive outcomes. So we can either do it soon for positive action with positive outcomes or we can do it slightly later when we recognise that, you know, we, we literally have, you know... We're at the, the green growth point at the moment and we mm. need to get to the point where we start questioning whether growth in GDP yeah. is... Not just whether it's feasible, but whether it's whether it's even necessary. Yeah. That's what that that's yeah, where that part book, of the book saying that green growth 100%. is a delusion. That's where that yeah. book changed me because I was very much on the board on board with you know when we talked. Well, it seemed about nice. We want to believe in green growth. Well, it it also just made things easy. It was like, well, here I can convince you know um, more people. Twi Twiggy Forest or whatever to use yeah. hydrogen because it's going to help green them grow. Growth. But now it's like you can't even you can't even look at it in that level and it becomes harder because with all of all of this information that we're starting to realize all of a sudden the amount of change that needs to happen is so massive yeah, but if we can see a chunk of the amazon be rehabilitated in 20 years yeah it's They'll, not beyond us. It would be a pro, it would be a good propaganda. Well, not you wouldn't want to. No. I don't know if you wouldn't call it propaganda, but it would be a good it's model a good to exemplar. illustrate. Yeah, exactly. There will be massive change. It just it's, it's how? just what sort of positive <laughs> yeah. or through flame. They're the choices. And positive is preferable, but based on human history, you know, I'm less positive about the positive. I've got to, I've got to mention it, Stephen. I really admire a your positivity, but b like, there's absolutely no malice. Like you would say that Keynes is, you know, perhaps the greatest human that ever, one of the greatest humans to ever live. But um, his contemporary, and I can't remember his name, 
Von Hayek. No, no Hayek. Yeah. Hayek. Hayek. Yeah. What was his first name? Friedrich. Friedrich. Yeah. He's an Aristo, so he's yeah. a Von. Yeah, he dropped the Von late in life. Yeah, but he but shouldn't yes. have dropped the Von because it's a good indication of what kind of cretin he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I feel like I feel like you wouldn't describe him as evil. <laughs> no, I don't actually describe just him misguided. as as Cain's adversary either. Right. Okay. Economists, my the people that I regard. I don't like to think of them as adversaries that I fundamentally disagree from mm. are fellow members of the economics profession. Yeah. Hayek is not taken seriously amongst economists. Really? Not, not even no, right-wing. Just wing. amongst okay. the political. Okay. Friedman is Elite. your right-wing right. economist, not, not Hayek. Right, no. Friedman, that's who yeah. I, I was actually thinking much of. Economics. But no, yeah. Hayek amongst the libertarians, mm. uh, very much so. But again, but, if we look at the, mm. the point of historical, yeah, these two people in the same city at the same time, both mm. writing books, Mm. One book massively important, the other book massively dangerous. Mm. Mm. Well done, humans, for once again getting it wrong. <laughs> well, it, it, I don't know, but it's, it's a pattern, though, David. The Christians crush Stoics. Yeah, the Confucians crush crush yeah, the Taoists. Taoists, uh, uh, Hayek's crush. <laughs> yeah. but, but largely speaking, um, let's not forget until the 1980s. Keynes won that argument. Yeah. Oh, and from reading Zach Carter's yeah. book, no, it's by the 50s under McCarthyism. The Keynesians are already becoming Keynes light. That's right. They're becoming Keynes light. They're not becoming. Uh, uh, <laughs> Hayek was not happy. No. Well, <laughs> I would much have preferred that Hayek wasn't happy. I much preferred no. he just ate his crayons and didn't write a book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah then it's... crazy white American rich people couldn't have gone, hey, let's create chairs in universities for people who believe in this garbage. Who do we need to write a book now? We need a modern day Keynes. Yeah. Basically, yeah. that's what we're yeah. looking for. Yeah. And, I... and we've got bits and pieces of it, but so far we don't have it all tied together in one place. I'm I'm looking forward to, and maybe this might even fill in some of the gap you were saying between feudalism and, uh, what was the other word you were saying? Enclosure. Um, enclosure. David Graeber has a book with an archaeologist coming out posthumously. Well, that might be really important for us to read and then maybe get that archaeologist. I think it's called on. The History of Humanity. Okay, it sounds like we need to read that one. Yeah. And I, I noticed this morning that Richard Heinberg has a new book out soon called Power. So we will definitely be trying to get a copy once it's available. He's a journalist, isn't he? Yeah. I believe so. And there's, think, a, there's yeah. uh, if you want an economist later on this year, I think mm. there's coming out later on this year. I don't, I can't say whether I'll agree with everything in it, but I, I, I imagine it will be interesting. Worth reading. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Keane is bringing out a book uh, which is going to be called the guy Man- from Sydney. A Manifesto. Oh, the guy oh, from wow. Sydney, yeah. Wow. Yes. Who left university and became an independent economist. Uh, that's the guy, yeah. yeah. His who, stuff's very who, interesting. Who... Well, he originally was very interesting about uh, macroeconomics in general and financial instability. Mm. More recently, he has been uh, criticising, demolishing the standard economic approach to climate change. Which, again, is another useful bit to add Mm. and provides an economic parallel to what Jason's kind of putting together. So, so many of these things just end up supporting each other Mm. in a way where you can see the continuity is greater than the differences. Mm. They're all heading in the same direction of wake up. It works differently than we think it does. And we need to conceive of the world differently. And there's such a beauty in learning all of this. I have a friend, Stephen, who's doing one of your classes at the moment and he's starting to 
realize how socially unpalatable all of these topics are but mm. the the interesting thing about it is that we've come to a conclusion that it really is just discovering how the world works around you it really is less about dollars and cents and, and money and numbers but mm. and and more about just understanding the systems that, that are around us and mm. i think that's why i'm loving going on this economics journey on this podcast even though we're not an economics podcast it's it, it really is it's i think that's an advantage in yeah it. What's the economics adding to being alive? Mm. What's the economics adding to being alive on a living planet? Yeah. It's a much better way to ask questions because it then connects with all the people who will never read mm. a, a dry economics textbook, mm. but will read a book that explains to them why our lives are in peril and where the life of our planet is in peril. Yeah. What's the purpose of economic activity in the first place? What is our ultimate <laughs> purpose? That's a question. We'll go Keynesian, <laughs> yeah. make a yeah. better society. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. on that note, gentlemen, I think we've done a pretty good full circle. We've suggested some <laughs> extra reading. Mm. We've had fun as ever. Mm. We know what book you're coming back to talk about next. Yeah. So when Steve Keenan releases his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, absolutely. That would be a great pleasure, I'm mm-hmm. sure. But you could probably get Steve to talk about it, but I'm not. <laughs> in his absence, I'd be happy. Yeah, but we can, again, there's some of these books we can always get yeah. both people, but absolutely. the great thing is, at least we feel like we know what we were talking about when we then talk to the person who wrote it. Mm. Yes. It's always good. Well, thank you both very much, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, both of you. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights. Or you can send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. And also, don't forget, we have merchandise. Thank you to the Oscast Network. Peace out.